Well, I invite you to turn with me to Psalm 85. We're continuing our Advent series, looking at various psalms that reflect upon some of the themes of Advent. And we see this, these, these themes often come out of a, a, a place of longing, out of a place of waiting, a place of despair, right? the, the gloomy night that we just sang about. Have you noticed that? I mean, we, we often see the decorations and the holiday cheer and the joy, and, and yet the, the place that that came out of for Israel and the, and the passages of Scripture that reflect upon the promises of Christ comes from a context of, of really despair, of wondering where our hope is, who we can trust. There's an um, episode of Twilight Zone called a, Night, a Nice Place to Visit. And uh, after the main character, is a, he's a burglar, and he's, he's gunned down in a burglary um, that that he is committing. His name's Mr. Valentine, and immediately after being killed, he's ushered into eternity. And so to his surprise, he ends up experiencing all the things that he had been craving in this life. He's brought into his luxurious penthouse, gets all of the, the things that he wanted in life. He's surrounded by popularity and and women, he's got, you know, he's brought into his home and he's shown his closet and he's just got fancy suits um, all throughout it. And, and, and he's, he's got as much alcohol as he could want. He's got this endless supply of money and women. He's going, he's, he goes to casinos every night. And, and as the ap- episode nears the end, he finds that his eternity is, is rather empty, that all of the things that he craved, all the things that he wanted, never gave him any kind of satisfaction. And it doesn't leave him satisfied, so he tells his guide, you know, I, I don't think heaven is for me. And his guide responds, what makes you think this is heaven? Now, that's, of course, terrible theology, Right? You don't find that anywhere in Scripture. You don't find this, this theme. But it does relate to something of a universal experience for humans, right? Of this kind of goal that's always off in the distance, that's always just beyond our reach, that we can never quite get where we're going. We're never achieving the thing that we want. And we can look at some success stories. We can see people who, you know, celebrities and athletes who, who do set the records, who do have all the money they could ever want. But what do we find it providing them with? It's, it's not a lasting satisfaction. It's not all that they had hoped it would be. It's as if in this life we, we truly cannot find what it is we're ultimately seeking, what we're ultimately asking. They, they crave having a meaningful existence. They have less money and yet they spend twice as much on self-improvement effort, right? Trying to find purpose and value and meaning. They want to make history in their lives. And as anxiety and depression are on a steady rise in America, 
Christianity and religion in general is in steady decline. The 18th century German philosopher Immanuel Kant said, the more a cultivated reason gives itself over to the aim of enjoying life and happiness, the further the human being falls short of true contentment. The more that we give our reason over and try to figure it all out and try to strategize a life for ourselves that is going to be filled with enjoyment and happiness, the further the human being falls short in true contentment. And so achieving the dream life often leaves us feeling rather empty, right? Even when we've achieved it, even when we've actually got the thing we were after. Money, fame, relationships, power, they never bring the value we expect them to bring. And so we always need a little bit more of whatever it is that we're chasing, but that's not what defines us, right? We're not defined by worldly success. Our identity is not found in what we have, but it's found in who we are. And who we are is always much deeper than these shallow appetites that we have, these surface, surface appetites of humanity. Our ultimate goal is only achieved in the enjoyment of God. When we begin to look away from ourselves, when we, get, when we begin to look to God and to glorify Him first and foremost, and to enjoy Him, that we actually find ourselves receiving the comfort and the peace and the satisfaction that we've been chasing all our lives. It's when we stop looking inwardly and start looking upward. And so this idea, this theme that, that I want us to reflect upon from this psalm is that we should listen to God's promises with great expectations this Advent season. Listen to God's promises to us with great expectations of their fulfillment in your lives. The authors of this psalm are said to be the sons of Korah, and they, they wrote 12 of the psalms. Um, and we know something of these sons of Korah Part of them made up the temple doorkeepers in the Old Testament. You can look at um, Psalm 84.10 and 1 Corinthians 9.17. That Psalm 84, since we're already there, you just look back. It says, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. And notice who wrote that Psalm as well. It's the sons of Korah. And you do know that that was also evident that they were doorkeepers. It wasn't just a reflection upon their humility, but it was an actual reflection upon what they did in the temple from 1 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, verses 17 and following. The rest of the family, it seems to have made up um, uh, in part of the singers and the musicians uh, within the temple. So the whole family was made up of, of temple servants, some serving at the door, others singing and providing the music. And so they wrote psalms. And the context of this particular psalm is really, it's somewhat hard to pin down. We don't know precisely what, what was taking place, but, um, but it seems most likely that it's a reflection upon Israel's return from Babylon. So they've come back from the Babylonian captivity, and so there's something to rejoice in, something to be grateful for in the mercies of God and yet they're not also experiencing all the blessings that they had prior to their exile. 
the, the temple's got to be rebuilt. The glory, it seems, is, is not there. It's not as magnificent as it once was. Their joy has faded. And so this psalm is a, is a reflection from that circumstance. And I think similar to Psalm 80 that we looked at last week, it's written from a place of longing, a place of hope, right? a place of looking forward to a, a future comfort and peace. And so they're reflecting upon God's past mercies, and then they're pleading for some present mercies in their lives, even as they look forward to a future hope. So before we read this psalm, let's ask the Lord once again for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for our opportunity to reflect upon this psalm, to consider the the deep meaning in these themes and how they really prepare us to support and encourage one another who are going through times of trial and times of longing and hope or, or times of distress like Israel was experiencing in this context. Lord, as we reflected upon in our prayer for the church in paradise and now really scattered from paradise as it's been destroyed. They're scattered throughout the state and gathering together even this morning in Chico. We, we pray that, that you would help us to relate to others who are in those kinds of positions, those kinds of predicaments where they, they look at their current circumstances and they don't know where to turn. Maybe their hope has faded. And as they see all the cheer and joy of this holiday season, they feel like it's far away from their own experience. And maybe there's many here experiencing that even now. We pray that this psalm would be an encouragement to them, that this psalm would give us the words of encouragement to tell others, and that you would fill us with the boldness to use the language of this psalm in our own prayers to you. On our behalf, on behalf of, of others, in our family, in our community, in our state. Lord, we pray that you would speak. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear this truth. Soften our hearts to respond appropriately. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So read with me Psalm 85. To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again? that your people may rejoice in you. Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let, let me hear what God the Lord will speak. For he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. 
faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good. Our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, again, many of us think as we look back upon past ages, past centuries, we think of a golden age, a particular era where really they, they had it much better than us. Uh, we think that some previous generation enjoyed some favor that we no longer possess. And these same people who reflect back on those previous generations are often, we often spend our lives complaining about the present, which ultimately is, is a fruitless endeavor. Ecclesiastes chapter 6, maybe you recall us being in that sermon series not so long ago. Ecclesiastes chapter 6 verse 10 said, Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. Like, we already know what reality is. Why are we filling our lives complaining or looking back, kind of pining for a past experience that we've never appreciated or enjoyed? And you may be wondering if that's how this psalm opens. Sort of reflecting back on a favor that they once had and, and, and longing for that in, in an improper way. What do we see? Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. It's all past tense. You did this in the past. And so after remembering the land blessings, the authors then begin to reflect upon spiritual blessings, and they're, and they're full. Right? They, these are the spiritual blessings that accompanied the people in, in their initial return from Babylon, forgiveness, uh, the atonement of their sins, the withdrawing of God's wrath. In fact, I would say the, the reason why they were able to enjoy these spiritual blessings was because God had withdrawn his wrath from them. He had turned from his hot anger towards them and blessed them with peace. So they aren't, I don't think, dreaming of a golden age, but they're remembering what truly happened. They're reflecting upon it um, with, with joyful remembrance. Right? It, it, it was a great experience, and although God's purposes were incomplete, that past favor was worthy of praise. Right? What you've experienced in the past, what God has done in your life is, is worthy of remembering and praising him for, not pining after it as if it's some enigma or some facade that you'll never be able to achieve once again, but to simply reflect and appreciate what God has already done. Our prayers should be like this. They should reflect upon what God has already accomplished in our lives. What they had already experienced did have ongoing effects. In fact, it had everlasting effects for them. God's peace was, 
was not removed in that ultimate sense. Those who trusted in him would know his forgiveness and his peace in eternity. And so our prayer should reflect upon what God has already accomplished. And if it was important for them under the old covenant to do this, then how much more important is it for us under the new covenant? We ought to remember God's past favor towards us. And in fact, I do believe that's one of the reasons why we enjoy the Lord's Supper every week. It's one of the benefits of doing it on a regular weekly basis so that we take the time to remember the greatest blessing that he's given to us in his son and what it cost him to bring that peace that we sought. And so don't let the routine of the Lord's Supper remove the sincerity of the practice. I mean, that's something we can be mindful of in everything we do in the worship service, even coming to church. I don't let the routine of coming to church just be another task you do or simply something that, that fills your week. But truly engage in reflecting upon God's blessings upon you. And practice it in sincerity. Remember what he has done, what he has accomplished on your behalf. And when you do that properly, it does lead you into a place of, of pleading for more of pleading for more of an experience of God's mercy in your life. We are not satisfied. We're not content with our present experience because we know we're not home. We know what we have in this life is, has not ultimately fulfilled us. Right? It hasn't fulfilled us in, in the sense of what the new heavens and, and new earth promises we will enjoy, where every sin is, wiped, is removed, every tear is wiped away. Those experiences we, we can't claim yet. And so we plead. We plead to understand them more. And that's what he, they do here in verses 4 through 7. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Notice the, the themes there that bracket this section. It's, it's of salvation. Verses 4 and 7 speak of God, our salvation, and show us your steadfast love, O Lord, grant us your salvation. See, Israel was aware of God's mercy in bringing them back into the land, but they knew also how far their experience fell short of the past. And so instead of complaining and murmuring, they, they now plead for God to show them more mercy. You might say, well, are you sure that's what's happening here? Because verses 5 and 6, it sounds like they're complaining. <laughs> it sounds like they're questioning even God's promises. Will you be angry forever? But the context, the fuller context shows that they are fully confident in God's steadfast love. They're confident in the salvation that God gave them in the past and that God has reserved for them and promised for them and given them an inheritance for the future. And so while verses 5 and 6 may sound like a question of God's delay or of his timing, and it might sound like they're being impatient or challenging his promises, I think verse 8 proves that they are confident in God's steadfast love. 
So they know they're deserving of God's anger, but they also know that that anger will come to an end. And so how is their experience consistent with the attributes of God's long-suffering patience and his short-lived anger? We think, well, if God's anger is short-lived, why is it prolonged to the point that they're now pleading with him to... Right? Will you be angry with us forever? Will you not revive us again? John Calvin says this. I think it's helpful. He says, let us therefore learn that although God may not immediately grant us manifest tokens of his returning favor, yet we must not cease to persevere in earnest prayer. Right? Even though we do not, imme- do not immediately receive the blessings or the, the sense of, of what we're praying for, the manifest tokens of God's favor being returned upon us, even though we don't immediately experience that, we cannot cease to persevere in earnest prayer. If it is objective, or if it is objected then that God has promised in vain that his anger would be of short duration, I answer that if we entertain suitable views of our sins, his anger will assuredly appear to be always of short continuance. Let me try to simplify that. If, if we think God is, God's anger is, is long, if we're beginning to grow impatient about that, maybe we should reflect upon what our sin deserves and be reminded that any length of God's anger, any, any shortened length of that is... Uh, it's always a short um, duration in, con- in comparison to the mercy that awaits or the eternity that awaits. And that's what he, he goes on to say. If we call the remembrance, call to remembrance the everlasting course of his mercy, we will confess that his anger endures but for a moment. Right? If, we can re- if we can be mindful that his mercy will be everlasting, then we will confess that his anger endures for a moment. And so as our corrupt nature is ever relapsing into the wanton indulgence of its native propensities, manifold corrections are indispensably necessary to subdue it thoroughly. So lots of big words from Calvin there, but the idea is that we are, when we truly reflect upon what we've already received and what God has promised to us for all eternity, then any length of suffering in this life is short. It's temporary. In fact, Paul reflects upon that, right? The short and temporary sufferings in this present life are unworthy of comparison to the glories that await. So salvation here that they reflect upon that brackets that section, verses four and seven. Salvation is a work that God delights to do, and it's why it will be a benefit that we enjoy for all eternity. Judgment, he tells us, is not pleasurable. He does not take delight in the death of the wicked. No, he enjoys to grant salvation, to offer that salvation, to call us to come to him. And so let us boldly come to the throne of grace, pleading these things not only for ourselves, but for every member of our household, for our community, for our neighbors, for this church, 
for this city. Let us be filled with this kind of pleading for God's mercy to fall, for his mercies to be new every morning, for us to experience and enjoy those mercies. And in order to enjoy that, it leads us to the next few verses of listening, listening for God's promised peace. So if you're, if you're looking at the notes and trying to follow along, verses one through three was remembering God's past favor. I don't think I made that clear. Remembering God's past favor. Verses four through seven is pleading for God's present mercies. Pleading for God's present mercies and now listening for God's promised peace. Listening and, and, and watching and waiting. And that's what we see here in verse eight. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak. Notice there's that confidence that he will speak this, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. There's an anticipation of peace. And this is the word of peace that God speaks into existence. Right? When God speaks, he creates. Let there be light and there is light. If he speaks peace, you will enjoy his peace. So when God declares peace, he is creating it for his chosen people. And this declaration of peace ultimately reached its climax on that first Christmas when angels gathered in chorus to sing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And when they enjoyed the climax of peace at Christ's birth, and so as we reflect upon that theme, let us, let us listen for that promise of peace. Let us hear it. And let us as saints respond appropriately, right? The saints are the recipients of God's steadfast love. In fact, the, the language there of saint and steadfast love that we, that we saw in verse 7 is actually derived from the same root word in Hebrew of hesed. It's that steadfast love of God that the saints, those whom that steadfast love has been placed upon. And so that the noun and the verb, they derive their same root from that Hebrew word, enabling us then not to turn back to folly. Verse 9, he says, surely that his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Again, salvation, that theme of salvation comes up once again. Fear is connected to the beginning stages of God's redemption in our lives. And although they have already been delivered from Babylon, they've now entered into this time of a lean harvest, right? where, where they're in the land, but they haven't enjoyed all of the blessings that they once had. And so a healthy fear of God had brought them back to the land, and now they're waiting for the blessings of his glory to return. They're waiting for the fruit of that fear to bear out. These blessings are not, are not merely for an ethnic Israel. Right? They're not merely for the Israelites um, that returned to the land. Jesus makes it clear that these promises are given to all of us who enter into the covenant through him. In his high priestly prayer, John 17, verse 22, we read, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them 
that they may be one even as we are one. That's the promise of receiving all that is held out to us this Advent season. Well, we only have a brief time to close here in um, verses 10 through 13, speaking of expecting God's future harmony, expecting God's provision of future harmony. Scripture doesn't provide a, a lot of details about what heaven is going to be like. Books, in fact, about heaven should be rather short. Um, I would recommend you pick up one by Derek Thomas, recently written. Excellent. So ignore the New York Times bestsellers, right, that attempt to fill in all the gaps with experiences that are not verifiable in Scripture. But the Bible does indicate that we will finally find a satisfaction beyond anything we can experience in this life. And so what does that promised restoration look like? Well, verse, verse 10, steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. The people are longing to see the attributes of God stirred up, want to know God. They want to understand him more fully. That's what leads to their satisfaction. God's justice and his mercy met at the cross of Jesus Christ. Where he takes the, the punishment that we deserve. He takes upon himself our penalty. And he gives us his righteousness in exchange. He dies for us and we receive his righteousness. It's the only way to preserve God's holiness and to show mercy to sinners, but it it isn't only the attributes of God that are being stirred up. It's also the fruit of that salvation as well. Um, Derek Kidner says, here then are the fruits of atonement rather than the act of it. There may, be, there may in fact be already in this verse a suggestion that the partnered qualities face each other from heaven and earth respectively. Notice verse 11 there, faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. This is a reflection upon God doing a work in us and in our response of faithfulness, right? He makes us into the people that he calls us to be so that we can respond in faithfulness to his promises. Faithfulness and righteousness are highlighted. There's this vertical relationship with God that is established by God so that we can be faithful to him and that we can enjoy that for all eternity. I, really, the, the, the best thing we can do right now is to respond to this singing with all of our heart. Right? As, we, as we respond to singing Psalm 85, may we do all of the things that we're talking about. May we remember God's past favor. May we plead his present mercies. May we listen for his promised peace and expect that future harmony where we enjoy all of God in his fullness, right? The enjoying his attributes, unhindered by sin. Righteousness prepares the way, concludes. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. It's personified as preparing a path 
So it transitions here. This verse transitions from the enjoyment of salvation's blessings to following in the path that righteousness has cleared. Right? Following after the righteous one, Jesus Christ. So let us listen to God's promises with great expectations this Advent season. Let us respond as we sing this psalm together, filled with hope and joy and peace. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these reminders in this psalm from the sons of Korah who give us this, this helpful model of how we are to respond in the midst of, of lean times, in the midst of challenging experiences. Help us to listen to your promises. Help us to look forward to their fulfillment and expect them even now to experience them more fully in our lives in the present. As we remember your past mercies upon us, as we plead for your present mercies, Lord, help us to hear these Advent themes and to be filled with hope in a future that awaits, Lord, where there is harmony between us and you. That is full and complete. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.